Thank you, Dana. If you'll stand or reach for your Bibles while you're standing and turn to the Old Testament book of Haggai. If it's going to take you a few minutes to get there, if it helps, it's after the book of Zephaniah. If that doesn't help. If you, have a, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to turn in your pew Bible to page 538. We're going to be reading from the book of Haggai, the first chapter, the first 15 verses, the entire chapter of Haggai, as Pastor Bruce begins a series called Church on the Rise. And in his first message, Pastor Bruce will talk about the time is now to rise up. And our scripture passage, once again, is Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, or page 538 in the Pew Bible. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come that the time of the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I might take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and on the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Father, we come to you this morning, and and Lord, let us be a church that's on the rise, that does your will and your purposes uh, for our church. Be with Pastor Bruce as he brings the message to us, and help us to have open hearts and open minds just to be changed by what your word says to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Zach, for reading our scripture reading today. I appreciate that. I'm sure most of you here can uh, still remember how the World Trade Center fell back almost 10 years ago now, on September 11th of 2001. In fact, how many of you actually saw it? You watched it on TV, the towers, the Twin Towers fall, almost most of you here. Like my wife and I, I can still remember watching those towers fall. We were on vacation in Branson, Missouri, and we got word uh, in the morning, and we rushed back to our, the lodging where we were staying. We turned on the TV, and for the next two hours, we sat there really in awe, in sober awe, shock. But how many of you ever thought about what it took to make those towers stand. We all remember how they fell, why they fell. 
We saw how they fell. But have we ever thought about what it took to actually make those twin towers stand? The construction of this massive complex made up of seven buildings in all and a shopping concourse began back in 1966. And prior to its destruction, the World Trade Center had been the world's largest commercial complex, home to many businesses, government agencies, and international trade organizations. And of course, most prominent among its structures are the, the, what is known as the Twin Towers, the 110-story structures, as they're now known. As you might imagine, the construction of the Twin Towers moved from the center up and from the bottom out, so as the crews worked to add floor upon floor, others were busy working to complete the lower floors. Some of the lower floors were actually completed with tenants renting office space prior to the final completion of the towers. And finally, after seven long years of construction, the twin, twin towers were officially opened in September of 1973. The cost for the entire World Trade Center exceeded, back then, $1 billion. I remember as a kid, my Uncle Bob lived in Long Island, New York. We took a vacation out there to see family. And I remember our Uncle Bob taking us. We saw the Statue of Liberty. We went to uh, uh, the Empire State Building. But the most, the thing I still remember to this day, I think I was in third grade, or not third grade, about sixth grade, is riding the elevator all the way up to the top of the Twin Towers. It seemed like it took forever. And we actually, there's an observation deck on the towers, or used to be, and uh, we went to the top. And actually, I have, I have a picture of me standing on the edge of the, of the railing behind me, and overlooking, or behind me, is the, uh, the New York, the Manhattan skyline. And I remember just standing on the top and looking out over it, and just this vast, huge city. Seems like forever ago. Now, you say, why, what's the big deal? Why do I tell the story, a construction story, if you will, of the World Trade Center, the so Twin Towers in particular? Well, as I mentioned two weeks ago, if you were here uh, for our series on chasing the vision, I believe God is leading us to build a church for all peoples. But building a church for all peoples doesn't just happen overnight. In fact, God doesn't just miraculously make it happen as well. I, w I wish he would. I wish he would just snap his fingers and all of a sudden we're a church for all peoples and we're booming and growing and, and, and whatnot. But it just doesn't happen that way. God uses each of us in the process of building his church. Because the construction has less to do with the building we actually worship in and more to do with us reflecting the grace of God and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to this community and to the surrounding communities and to the city and even globally all over the world. But Satan would like to, to stop that. Satan would like to destroy what we are seeking to build. He would like to see it all come crashing down, if you will, around us like the falling of the Twin Towers. Thankfully, that's impossible for the devil to do. But he can do this. He can slow us down as a church body. He can discourage us and slow us down if we don't stay focused on what's most important as a church and as individuals. And that's why we're starting this series today. A new series in the book of Haggai 
that we're calling Church on the Rise. The book of Haggai is one of 12 books in the Old Testament that are known as the, quote, minor prophets. Maybe you've heard that term before, but don't let that confuse you. These books are not minor because they are in any way less significant or less important. They're simply called minor because of their length. If you take notice of the book of Haggai, it's how many chapters? Two chapters. Two chapters. In fact, it's only 38 verses in all. It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament, but it contains a powerful message, listen to me, that's still relevant for us today. That's what I love about God's Word. Man, God's Word still speaks today. And here's a book that was written almost 2,500 years ago, and yet it has a powerful message for me and for you here in the 21st century. And we're going to learn what those messages are. We're going to learn what, some of, what God has for us today to say. In fact, Haggai, you can think of this little short book like this. It's, it's kind of like a bottle of hot sauce. You just take a picture of Tabasco, a little bottle of Tabasco sauce. It may be small, but let me tell you, this book can reduce a grown man to tears, like a bottle of hot sauce. But it's also like a jug of cold milk. It soothes a burning mouth so it's ready for more. And that's the, what's so great about God's Word. It has that kind of spicy and silky power to it. Now, before we get into this first message that Haggai has for us, let's, let's discover a little bit of the background to the book. Notice uh, the background. Number, first of all, here, Haggai is the author. He's the one that writes this book. He's the one that preaches the messages in the book. And his name means festive or festival. And, and some scholars believe this suggests Haggai might have been born during one of the great religious festivals in Israel. But other than his name, we really don't know a lot about this man. We know very little. We, we know nothing about his parents. We don't know anything about his birth. We don't even know anything about his death. He came onto the scene without any prior announcement. He gave these four messages of God to the people of God. And then less than four months later, he disappeared from off the pages of history as suddenly as he came. He's only mentioned in the, uh, one other time or two other times, I think, in the book of Ezra. And other than that, we know nothing about him. Kind of interesting. Haggai, number two, was written in 520 B.C. It was written in 520 B.C., and I know that date may not mean a whole lot to you, but basically it's 18 years after a remnant of God's people returned to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity. Now, at the time, in the Babylonian captivity, uh, there was a king of Persia named Cyrus, and, and God, working on this pagan king, moved in his heart to allow the people, he permitted the, God's people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, he, re, he permitted about 50,000 Jewish exiles to return from the captivity in Babylon to return back to Jerusalem. And when they went back, and what they found was shocking devastation of their city. Their city was in ruins. The walls that surrounded the city were torn down. But most of all, their beautiful, glorious temple was destroyed. 
But under the leadership, as Zach read for us in the introduction, of Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel, however you want to pronounce it, doesn't make any difference. We could call him Mr. Z. Under his leadership as the governor of Judea and then Josiah, the high priest, the people began the work of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding their lives, and most of all, rebuilding the temple of God. And you may be wondering, well, what's so spectacular about the temple of God here? What's so important about God's temple? Well, in the Old Testament culture, what you've got to understand is that the temple was a very sacred place. If you can imagine this, the presence of God, And the glory of God actually resided in the temple. It's where the people came to worship God Almighty. And so without the temple, there was really no central place of worship for the Jews. And so rebuilding the temple became priority number one when they returned from the captivity in Babylon to God's city. You've heard of it as Zion, sometimes referred to Jerusalem. Today, though, we don't worship in the temple. We don't have an Old Testament temple. Today, God has established his church, the body of Christ, us, if you will. We are now the temple of God. And where his spirit dwells, and Christ is the chief cornerstone, and God is the builder, and he builds each of us, and he uses us in that process. Now, like any big building project, rebuilding the temple was a monumental task. It was a huge endeavor. And at first there was this remarkable enthusiasm as the people, they they cleared the rubbish away, they cleaned the site, and they rebuilt the altar where they offered the burnt sacrifices, and they relayed the foundation for the temple. At this point, you can go back to the book of Ezra, and Ezra tells us that the people got so excited about this of just rebuilding the altar and the foundation, that they began to sing and dance and celebrate, and they just, man, they had a big party. But soon their enthusiasm began to fade, and the work stopped because of discouragement and opposition, and the people began to forget about the priority of God's temple, the priority of rebuilding the temple. After all, there was plenty of other work to do. I mean, they were trying to to restart a nation from scratch, and as the years passed, slowly but surely, Jerusalem came to life again. I mean, homes were built, stores opened up, commerce established, fields were planted, crops were harvested, and the people kind of just got caught up in the routine of life. There was only one problem with all this. The temple was still not rebuilt. The foundation was now overgrown with weeds. And every time the Jews would would pass the foundation, it stood as a reminder of their failure to put God first in their lives. Sixteen years pass. And God's not going to let this go. So he raises up a man. He raises up his servant. He raises up a man by the name of Haggai to confront the people in the summer of 520 B.C. Which brings us to our third background point here. Notice this. Haggai was a prophet. 
You say, what's a prophet? We don't have, do we have prophets today? What's a prophet? I've never heard of a prophet. Well, a prophet, think of it this way in the simplistic, uh, simple, simplest terms. A prophet is one who is appointed to speak for God. That was Haggai's purpose here, to speak God's message to God's people. And you may be asking, well, what was God's message through the prophet Haggai? Well, his message was blunt and to the point. Most prophets were. Let me tell you, Haggai didn't waste any words. And he, let me tell you, how oh, he didn't hold any punches back. He gives it to the people, frank and direct. And basically, Haggai's message is to the people, put first things first. The time is now to finish rebuilding the temple. Four messages he spoke to the people. And in these four messages, they were spoken to people just like us. I think as you, we begin to go through the message this morning and in the coming weeks, my, my hope is that you will begin to see yourself in these messages. There's a lot of parallels. We are so much like these people, and they're so much like us. Now, that's not always a bad thing, as we're going to find out, too. These were good people. These were God's people, good people with good intentions. In fact, these people would have told you that God must be first, that God should be a priority in their lives. They believe that. Hey, we believe that. But the people had drifted into a way of life where they gave lip service to the priority of God, but in reality, they were living with other priorities at the top of their life. And so God sent this prophet Haggai to challenge the people to put first things first in order to rebuild the temple. So we could stand back from this, and if we do an overview of the book of Haggai, we can come up with a theme. We could summarize the theme of the whole book, 38 verses, two chapters this way. It's the people of God rising up to rebuild the temple of God for the glory of God. So think of it this way. The book of Haggai is about a group of people rising up. That's why we're calling this church on the rise, because that's our calling. And it's about a prophet of God, the people of God, and the glory of God. You take those three things and put them together, and you got the theme of the book. It's about a prophet of God coming to the people of God and challenging them, confronting them to, if I can say it this way, to get off their butts, to rise up, realign some priorities, and start rebuilding the temple of God for his glory. That's what this book is all about. And how, man, that speaks powerfully to us today. In fact, the way Haggai motivates the Jews to build the temple of God has a powerful application to our own efforts as we strive to build the church of God here at Glenwood. So let's take a look at Haggai's first message and see how it applies to us. The time is now. The time is now to do three things we find in this message from Haggai. Number one, the time is now to listen to God's analysis, to listen to God's analysis. Look what it says again in the very first verse of Haggai. It says, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, 
the word of the Lord came, excuse me, by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, the governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying. Now, I want you to notice immediately here that God's word is being spoken through Haggai. This is God speaking to the people of God. And folks, listen to me. God's word is still relevant today. Do not think of this book only, as I told the teens this morning, as a history book, although it contains history. When God speaks, even though he spoke to the people 2,500 years ago, he is still speaking to us today. This is the word of God coming to us through a man, through the prophet Haggai. Notice that immediately here. And listen, the time is very specific. That's what's interesting about this book. You can date this precisely in history re- can verify this. In fact, he says it's, it happens in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. And you're like, well, what date is that? Precisely, it is August 29th, 520 B.C. You know what that tells me? God has something important to say. God has something of the uttermost importance to say, and the time is now to listen up. The time is now to listen to his analysis. Not tomorrow, not next week, but today is the time. And you say, well, what is God's analysis of the problem? Because that's what God is doing. He's analyzing a problem in the people of God. Notice what his analysis is. is that the people of God were neglecting to rebuild the temple of God as a result of their misplaced priorities. As a result of misplaced priorities. Now again, understand with me a moment here, something. The people that Haggai is speaking to, man, they started out very committed to God. As I said, these were good people. After all, that's why they left their homes and their possessions back in Babylon to make the, the... the uh, difficult journey back to Jerusalem. And what you have to understand about this, when, when, because of the previous generation's sin and rebellion and disobedience against God, God's wrath comes on his people, the nation of Israel, and he sends the, the Babylonians to capture them, destroy their city, destroy their temple, and take them into captivity. And they were there for about 50 years at this point in time. But in those 50 years, it wasn't like they were in prison. They were living among the Babylonians. They they were given freedom to reestablish their lives, if you will, to plant crops, to build a home and a house, to educate their children. They were living life kind of as the norm, but not the norm, because they were aliens in a foreign nation in Babylon. And so now God comes and begins to work through this pagan king Cyrus and and he stirs among the people, the remnant, you've heard of the remnant before of the nation of Israel, to go back to Jerusalem because God is a covenant God. He's not going to break his promise. And God is faithful to keep his promise. And he knew there needed to be a point in time where he takes them back to rebuild. And so a certain group, 50,000 people, are willing to stand up and rise up and say, hey, I'll leave what I've established here. I'll pick up my roots again and I'll go back to Jerusalem. For you, Lord. I'll put you first. I'll put your purposes first and your mission. Why? Because your name is so important. 
so that countries around us know that your temple and your glory and your presence will not be denied forever. We will rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We will rebuild the temple. And people will know that you are truly God all over again. And so this group of people, 50,000 of them, listen, they started out very committed. They loved God. They were committed to his purposes, and they looked forward to worshiping him again in the temple. True, they were now neglecting to rebuild the temple. And oh, this was a serious in God's sight, a serious issue and problem. In fact, it was an indication that their spiritual priorities were now inverted. Their priorities were misplaced. They were living for themselves instead of for God's glory. But they were still the right people, living in the right place, wanting to do the right work for the right reasons. And yet, as the years had gone by, they were now kind of caught up in their own pursuits, in their own life, to the point that they were letting God's work slide. Now, if I may be so blunt as Haggai, church, please listen, that's our problem today. That's our problem for most Christians across our nation and most churches. We are just like God's people in Haggai's day. And perhaps you can begin to already see yourself in this picture, in this little book tucked away at the end of the Old Testament. And if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm sure there was a time where where inwardly or even publicly you made a commitment to follow Christ. You were zealous for spiritual things. You couldn't... You looked forward to getting up in the morning and reading your Bible. You got involved serving in ministry, and you wanted to know God's will. Not only that, you wanted to do God's will. But life has kind of now moved on for you. Perhaps you're finished school now, you're married now, you you got a family now. So now you have a job, there's kids, there's grandkids, there's bills to pay, there's a house to maintain, there's kids' activities to rush to, there's a dozen other things to think about. And all the while, God and His work has drifted into the background. Oh, you still attend church when you can, when it fits within your schedule. But it's just become another slice of the pie. A slice of life. And you tell yourself, hey, I just don't have time anymore to be involved like I used to. Hey, let the younger kids, let the older people, let those who are retired or the younger, more time, more whatever. Let them do it. I've given my time. Been there, done that. And just like in Haggai's day, the word of God comes to us now. And God is asking us, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing to fulfill my purposes through my church today? Not ten years ago, not even last year, but today, now. God asked the people the same question in regard to rebuilding the temple. You know what they did? They offered up some pretty lame excuses. Notice this. Notice the people's apathetic excuse. Their excuse is heard loud and clear in verse 2. The time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Apparently the people 
had not only ceased work on the temple, but they had also done what many Christians with misplaced priorities do. We make excuses. We're pretty good at that, aren't we? I know I am. I can almost hear Haggai ask, hey, what do you mean it's not time to rebuild the temple? It's been destroyed for almost 70 years now. Don't you think the time is now to get to it? It wasn't that they were opposed to rebuilding the temple. I understand that. The people weren't, they weren't antagonistic to it. They weren't opposed to it. They just came up with all kinds of excuses why the time wasn't right. Hey, the job's too big. It's too difficult. Lord, we need more time to, well, pray about it. We're too busy with raising our families now. The cost is too great. And, and, you know, Lord, we've been without a temple for almost 70. Who needs a temple anyway? We're getting along pretty good now. You name it, they came up with it. Basically, they were looking for a better time and an easier time. But the result was the same in every case. Delay, delay, delay. Procrastination. One thing I've learned early on in my life, it's always easy to make excuses when you don't want to obey God. That's kind of the bottom line. But, oh, God would have the last word with his people when he exposed the real issue in their lives. When he exposed what was really going on in their heart, look at it here with me. The people's problem is exposed. In verse 4, God asked them, oh, he asked them a pretty penetrating question. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? (laughs) Whoa! Talk about a punch in the gut. Man, God hit him right where it hurts most. He hit them with their, in their personal lives. And that's where it always hurts most. You see, Haggai noticed something about the people. He made an interesting observation. They have time and money to build their own houses, but not the house of God. In fact, they didn't just build plain houses. It says they built themselves some pretty fancy homes. That phrase, paneled houses there, it refers to a house made with the best wood possible. And you have to understand, Jerusalem, there weren't a lot of trees going on. The best wood possible at that time was in Lebanon, so you had to import the wood. In other words, here's what's going on. The people... We're getting on with life. So how could it be then that they were able to get on with the work God had given them to do as well? Now please understand, there's nothing wrong with having a nice home. And let me tell you, most Americans, 99% of us as Americans, or those who even live in this country, we have nice homes in comparison to the other two-thirds of the world. There's nothing wrong with having a nice home. There's nothing wrong with improving your home either. That's not the issue. Listen, they had to do a lot of these things. They were trying to rebuild a nation. They were trying to raise their families and reestablish Jerusalem as a city and whatnot. The problem was no priority was given to the Lord's work in the midst of all this. Instead of rebuilding their 
Instead, rebuilding their personal lives had taken over their priorities. And in the process, listen, it squeezed out God and his work. So God was accusing the people now of having plenty of time for themselves while pleading a lack of time for him. This was serious issue of misplaced priorities, and God's not going to let them slide on it. God raises up a servant, and he calls them on it, which leads us to Haggai's second point. The time is not only now to listen to God's analysis, but the time is to consider Haggai's appeal. We find Haggai's appeal in verse 5, and he appeals to the people in this manner. He says, consider your ways. Some of your translations may even say to give careful thought to your ways. In other words, the time is now, Haggai says, to take a good, hard look at your life and your priorities. This appeal, it's interesting. If you read through these two chapters, this appeal is mentioned five times, this phrase, consider your ways, consider your ways, consider your ways, consider your ways, and consider It's meant to be taken seriously. This is not something that we should just kind of, ah, shrug it off. It's not something we should just disregard. In other words, this is not an option for us. We need to seriously consider our ways. Haggai says that there are two specific things we should consider. Notice them here in your notes. First of all, He wants us to consider the dissatisfaction you are experiencing in life. Consider the dissatisfaction you're experiencing in life. And then Haggai gives the people tangible evidence of this. In case they don't see it for themselves, because obviously they haven't so far, he points it out for them in verse 6. Notice what he says. Consider how you have so much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Now, is this not a picture of our society today? Listen, because the people had pushed God out of the center of life, they were now suffering in every area of life. They had fields without produce. They had action without satisfaction and labor without profit. In other words, the people had devoted themselves to what people since the beginning of time had devoted themselves to and to what people today are still devoting themselves to. Food, drink, clothing, and earning more money. Nothing's changed in 2,500 years. But it was like chasing after the wind. They were like the person in the Pennsylvania Dutch expression, the hurrier I go, the behinder I get. Haggai is telling the people that the reason they are dissatisfied is that they have tried to make their own lives comfortable and secure while neglecting the temple of God. Haggai is saying to them, hey, listen, Look, take a look in the mirror. Ask yourself, 
Where has all this work and effort on your own lifestyle got you in the end? I mean, are you really any happier or more content because of it? And so they lived in perpetual frustration and discontentment. Nothing satisfied. Oh, it satisfied for a moment, for a time, but it didn't bring ultimate satisfaction and happiness. Now, we can't pass over this, folks. This speaks loud and clear to our own lives today. Listen, so many people today, so many Christians today are living at such a hectic pace chasing after the American dream with absolutely no thought about God and losing out as a result of it. Listen, if you devote yourself to sowing and eating and drinking and clothing yourselves and earning more money, but neglect your ministry within the body of Christ, you will live in constant frustration and dissatisfaction. If you spend your time and energy seeking comfort and security from the world, and do not spend yourself for the glory of God, listen to me, every pleasure will leave its sour aftertaste of dissatisfaction and guilt in your heart. You say, so, whoa, man, so what's the solution then to all this? Or before that, the solution, what's the cause of it, though? Why is this the case? Well, it's the work of God, Haggai says. Notice this with me. He says, not only consider the dissatisfaction you're considering, but consider the discipline you are experiencing from God. You see, as a result of losing perspective, and their passion for God's work, in putting themselves first before God, God comes along and He disciplines them. He restricts their prosperity to nothing more than just barely getting by in life. And perhaps you're wondering, You mean God would do that? You mean God would actually do that to me? He would make my life to the point such and bring circumstances around me that I'm just barely getting by in life? Yeah. You bet he would. God sent emptiness so that his people might recognize their misplaced priorities. Folks, listen, I, I beg you, if you're here this morning, and you're, you're, you're experiencing dissatisfaction in life, you're experiencing frustration in life, barely getting by in life, basically you're just not all that happy. In fact, you're not even really, it's not even pleasant to be around you. If, if that describes any of you in any way, it just might be God at work in your life. And Haggai's coming to you and say, get down on your knees and take a look at yourself. Consider your ways. Consider your life. I'm trying to get you to open up your heart and your life that you may have some misplaced priorities. And I'm trying to get you to see that. In fact, notice this. Look what Haggai writes about God's discipline in verses 9 through 11. He says, you look for much, but indeed it came to little. 
And when you brought it home, God says, I blew it away. And then God asks a rhetorical question. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land, and the mountains, on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and all the labor of your hands. That's why. Haggai is challenging the people to consider their lives and ask, why are we working so hard to get ahead and we're just get, barely getting by? What's up with that? What's the deal with that? Haggai is saying, listen, think about what you're doing. Evaluate if neglecting God's priorities is really paying off for you. Because God will not be mocked. He's the one. He's the one who's causing your futility in life and your frustration in life and your dissatisfaction. God allows us to suffer the results of our wrong choices in order to get our attention. But not just to get our attention, to convict us of our sin and to lead us to repentance. But understand, that's the outward problem. That's the symptom of a deeper problem. Notice the problem, the real problem, then and still today. It's not the neglecting of a building, but the indifference to the glory of God. And the reason I say indifference to God's glory is the real problem here is because of what God says in verses 7 and 8. Look at it. God says, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring the wood and build the temple. Why? Notice that here's the key of the whole book of Haggai, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. You want to know why you're here on this earth? Why God hasn't zapped us dead? Why he hasn't taken us home? Listen to me, if you're a believer, you want to know why you're here? It is to bring glory to him. And we don't give any thought to this. We're indifferent to his glory. We're like, so what? Big deal. Just like the people in Haggai's day. The temple of the Old Testament existed for the glory of God. And the church today exists for the glory of God. And indifference to the growth of the church and the mission of the church is always a sign of indifference to the glory of God. And the sour fruit of this failure is a life of chronic frustration and dissatisfaction. To quote John Piper's paraphrase of the words of Jesus Christ, he says, and I quote, He who seeks to save his life will lose it to continual frustrations. But he who loses his life for the glory of God and good of his mission will find life and find it abundant and fulfilling. So what's the solution then to this? Well, the solution is simple. It's to rise up and do the work of God as Haggai commands in verse 8 when he says, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. In other words, it leads us to point number three. The time is now to follow the people's actions. 
You see, in all of life, there's a time to talk, and there's a time to act. There's a time to stop considering and start doing. This was a time to start doing. In other words, God doesn't want the people of Israel sitting around and considering their way of life forever. God wants them to change their way of life and to take action in rebuilding the temple. And that's exactly what they did. And it's exactly what we need to do. Notice this. Like the people in Haggai's day, we need to, first of all, obey the Lord. We just need to obey God by rising up for his glory. You know, you know what? Sometimes we complicate the Christian life. Have you found that to be true? We take the simple things and we complicate them. And you want to know, for us as believers here this morning, you know what the one essential response God is looking for in our lives Obedience. It's no different than my two kids. I tell Jack all the time, Jack, you know what? Your life would just be grand in our household. If you would just be quick to hear, quick to obey. You know what? God says the same thing to us, folks. It doesn't mean it's without problems. It doesn't mean that, but... You know what? There would be a satisfaction in our hearts if we would just respond with obedience and put him first. Notice the people's response in verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. It's interesting, the leaders, they, they lead the way. It starts with me, it starts with Pastor Chris, it starts with our leadership council, our ministry team leaders here at Glenwood to lead the way and do the consideration of our own lives first and for the people to follow because that's exactly what happens. And with all the remnant of the people, what did they do? Obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Remember, the people had been negligent of God's work for 16 years. And they had had invented flimsy excuses as to why they were negligent. Now, understand, again, I remind you, they were not hostile to God and his commands. Like people living before them. Overall, they really wanted to please God. So when God confronted them... They did what he commanded. They feared the Lord and rose up and obeyed. And that's what we need to do. Number two, though, we also need to just trust in the Lord's promises. The promise of his presence and the promise of his power. I love what Haggai says to the people here because he reminds them that God always responds when we change our ways and take the right action. Look what he says in verses 13 and 14. It says, in Haggai, the Lord's messenger spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Is that not just the greatest phrase of all? Man, Jesus repeats that phrase in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. At the end of it, he gives the church the mission. He says, don't worry about it. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. God's doing the same thing here. So that they, and then the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. 
in the spirit of Joshua, in the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Haggai reminds that God basically says, I'm with you. God's presence is with them every step of the way, but so is his power. God stirred up his people to get them to fulfill their commitment to rebuild the temple. That is, God gave them an enthusiasm. He gave them an excitement and an energy to do what they had committed themselves to do. And what was the result? Oh, you've got to love it. Haggai says they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They recommitted themselves to the first priority. And with God's power, they began to rebuild the temple. Now, that's Haggai's first message. There's three more to come. But today, what lesson do we take away from this? What is the one thing we should focus on as we walk out of God's house here today? Well, notice this in your notes. One abiding lesson from Haggai's first message, and that is check out your priorities. Check out your priorities. And if need be, put first things first. Listen, Haggai challenges us twice to check out or consider our priorities. Why? Because Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, 36, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Church, listen to me. The people of Haggai's day were so busy trying to gain the whole world that they were, in effect, losing their own souls. They made every excuse in the book for neglecting God's work. And now, not all the excuses were wrong. But they were all sinful. Because they caused the people to push God from the center of their lives to the perimeter of their lives. And we make the same mistake today. And that's why being comfortable is so dangerous. The church is comfortable today in America. Satan has us right where he wants us. And it's a dangerous place to be as part of the body of Christ, and it's a dangerous place to be as an individual child of Christ. Comfortable in your life, in your spiritual life, I'm talking. It's when we're comfortable that Satan can most effectively blur and confuse our priorities. It's when we're comfortable that it's easy to chase after good things instead of godly things. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33? Let's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does he promise? All these things that we're chasing after, shall be added to you. Now, those things, in context, are the things we need in life, not our wants and desires. The time is now, folks, as it is with my own life. The time is now, not tomorrow. The time is now to check out our priorities. And if need be, put God first. Put first things first. In her commentary on Haggai, Joyce Baldwin speaks of the moral paralysis that keeps us from obeying God. 
She says that because we know what God wants us to do and because we don't want to do it, our lives are stuck in the kind of permanent spiritual neutral. We can't go forward or backward. We just stay where we are, miserable and unfulfilled. Then she adds this telling sentence, to think that any time will do to become serious about God's cause is to fail him completely. How true that is. That was the problem in Haggai's day. The people intended to obey God, but because of misplaced priorities, they kept delaying and ended up not obeying him at all. In one of his sermons, and I close with this last illustration here, Ravi Zacharias tells the story of a missionary named Robert Jaffre of Canada. He came from a very wealthy, wealthy family. And in fact, he was heir to a large newspaper fortune in Toronto. And when he was a young man, he learned the Chinese language and was offered a, a large salary by the Standard Oil Company in New York City if he would only forgo his missionary career and work for them. He refused. So they doubled their salary offer. He refused again. They cabled him with this message, Robert Jaffrey, at any cost. He cabled them back. Your salary is too big. Your job is too small. Your salary is too big. Your job is too small. What a fantastic perspective on life. And oh, that I and you, that we would simply see our priorities so clearly as that. What are you living for today? Are you living for these teeny-weeny little things of life that are so trivial in the long run that we think are so important today? Or are we living for the glory and grandeur of God in what lasts forever? With your heads bowed. And as we prepare for our response time, you know, let me ask you just a couple questions here. What is keeping you from obeying God? Where is the moral paralysis in your own life? Is my own comfort of greater importance to me than the work of God? Am I making increasing efforts to get ahead only to find greater disappointment in my life? Listen, if the answer is yes, then let me encourage you to check out your priorities. And if need be, put God first again in your life. Listen, Bill's going to lead us in the praise team in one course, one verse here. And the response is simple. The response is to get on our knees. And I know you can come to this altar, you can get on your knees here, you can stay at your pew, but to open up our hearts to God and let Him check out our priorities and do some realignment of them. That's the response.